This is Nicole Deffenbaugh. If you are enjoying the podcast, we invite you to tell your friends and family and like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. My last trip to the neurologist um, because of some dehydration was very interesting. After a little work, he said, your brain's dehydrated. And I said, yes, dehydration's an issue. And we talked about having Crohn's, uh, which I think now I've probably had my entire life. And he said, part of the reason that we don't know what to do with you is because most people don't live that long. And so I went, oh great, so I'm special again. And he said, yes, sort of. And that's the way it's always been. I don't know what's gonna happen next. Welcome to Health Stories. Inside the healthcare system, these are real stories with clinicians and patients. And we invite you, the listener, to uh, glean some tips and insights about how to navigate our complex U.S. healthcare system. I'm Nicole Deffenbaugh, and I am here with Michael Martin, a professor, who is sharing his story about being chronically undiagnosed. Welcome to the show. Good morning. So you're telling us, I heard you say that you have Crohn's disease and you're with a neurologist? I was with a neurologist this last time, yes. Okay, and so what happened after he said, we don't know what to do with you because no one has lived this long? What was... Well, I kind of stared at him, uh, and it's not the first time that I had met him, so his saying that was not quite so um, traumatic, I guess. And I asked um, what to do, and that my journey with Crohn's has been that um, I've had 11 abdominal surgeries, wow. uh, starting in 1986. I was diagnosed initially with ulcerative colitis in 1980, uh, early 1984. Um, and then through all the various surgeries where they kept taking out more and more things and reorganizing my intestinal system, uh, there have been difficulties and I realized this past December that I had actually lived half my life, 31 years with a partial digestive system. Wow. So while I have had tests in the last year that say that my Crohn's is in remission, um, other things have happened uh, that have to do with dehydration uh, kidneys shutting down because they can't figure out that I have fluids in my system. The, the fluids then build up. That's thrown me into congestive heart failure, uh, created a lot of headaches. So while the Crohn's technically isn't a problem, all the things they've done to battle the Crohn's has become a problem. Yeah. So that's his issue. It's like, and he said, you are a classic person of Crohn's that was diagnosed and treated in the 80s, 90s, and into the early 2000s. Uh, we did what we could do. We didn't have Remicade, we didn't have Humira, we didn't have and all of a those number of are... drugs. Those are drugs that are injectable, I think. I've never taken them because they won't help me. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, they're immuno <coughs> immunosuppressant drugs. Yeah. yeah. And biologics. Right. Yeah. So I, I can't use them because they wouldn't do anything anyway. Mm. Um, you had all of your colon removed? You had a yes. I, my first surgery in 86 was a partial colectomy, but it was close to total because they took out 90% of my intestine. Okay. Also, what was considered to be ulcerative colitis initially, rather than starting in the rectal area, which is often the case, mine started in the ileal area or just below the ileal area into the large intestine. So they took out the large intestine, which would have been the ascending transfers and then part of the descending mm -hmm. and left me with about 10%. And that worked well for about five years. Mm. And then I had another flare-up of then what was called ulcerative colitis and ended up in the hospital, uh, went on massive doses of, of steroids and asulfidine. Which, I which was, is? Asulfidine is a sulfur-based antibiotic that works just primarily in the intestinal system. So if you're hearing noises. We have some cars going by in the background, so our listeners might be hearing that. So I'm sorry, keep, keep going with the, the medication you're on and you had 10% well, of your colon. And yeah, the medication that I was on at that time, and, and we're looking at 1986 and then into 1991, um, I was on a again, which is a sulfur-based antibiotic, and I was on 2,500 milligrams a day which is a significant dosage. Um, because of the hemorrhaging and the inflammation, I was on uh, as much as 80 milligrams of, of prednisone a day. And if I would get below 40 milligrams, I would start to hemorrhage. Mm -hmm. So I never got below 40 milligrams of prednisone for almost two years. Oh, wow. And... Um, while people... I didn't have the weight gain that a lot of people had, and I didn't have the puffy face. Moaning. Um, yeah. yeah. I did, um, didn't sleep much. Uh, that was when I first started teaching and my students would actually say, uh, Professor Martin, are you on steroids again? And I'd be, yes, why? And they are like, because I got 13 pages of notes in 70 minutes. I'm wow. like, oh, okay, sorry. And, you know, I just learned how to you know, it just was. You just did it. Um, there were periods of time when the Crohn's was particularly active or it's still then ulcerative colitis. Um, I was alternating Rawasa enemas, which is a drug that again to help the inflammation in the intestine, uh, and hydrocortisone enemas every day. When I was uh, first on that regimen, my medications would cost me $160, $170 a week. No, that was with insurance? That was with insurance. Well, I had to pay it out of my pocket, and then I would be reimbursed by my insurance at that time. Mm -hmm. And it took six weeks. So I had six weeks worth the, the receipts. And at that time, there was some real concern whether I could even afford my medication. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, then in 91, I had, you know, the, we had this flare-up, and... Uh, I ended up in the hospital and they said what small uh, degree of large intestine I had left was completely ulcerated, that there was not much they could do for it. 
And that started in late January, early February. And by the end of April, I ended up um, in surgery in Arizona. And I lived in Pennsylvania at the time mm -hmm. uh, to do what was called an ileoanal J pouch anastomosis. Where they create uh, a pouch out of the ileal area of your small intestine uh, and then sew it into the rectal muscles of your body. Uh, that's a two-stage surgery and that was the first time I had the ileostomy temporarily. That was incredibly traumatic. Um, about a day and a half after surgery and I'm lying in bed and of course I can't roll over and it hurts and um, the ostomy started to leak and I was just mortified. So for those who are listening, because um, you're talking a lot about autoimmune disease and, and right. that's what we're talking about, um, but just being chronically undiagnosed at this time in your life, uh, for people who may not know, the, the pouches where you're actually emptying, your bowels are emptying into an external bag. Correct. Um, so they, it was something that was new. Yeah, they pull... Uh, a piece of your small intestine through a hole in your abdominal cavity and sew it into the skin of your body and then you have a wafer that attaches to your body and then this pouch attaches to the wafer. Um, twice in less than two hours that started to leak on me and so you literally have fecal material leaking on you and I, I started to cry and uh, they got me cleaned up and the next morning, the enterostomal therapist came in and said, I heard you had an interesting evening. Mm. And my response to her was that that was a really poor euphemism for literally shitty. Oh, <laughs> and she said, but it's only poop. And I said, but I wasn't planning to get so intimate with it. And... Wow. Uh, she said, would it help if someone came to speak with me? Mm. And I said, yes. And the next day, a really healthy, tan, kind of buff-looking biology professor from uh, one of the universities in Arizona came in to see me. And we had a great conversation. And actually, I finally felt like maybe I can do this. Mm. Even though it was only going to be six weeks um, or eight weeks, I can't remember. I was just petrified. Mm -hmm. And um, so I got out of the hospital, ended up with a complication in less than 36 hours, ended up back in the hospital with an intestinal blockage. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I had a nasal gastric tube put in while I was awake for the first time. So that's a tube that tube goes up your nose into your stomach. Okay. Uh, and they spray this stuff in the back of your throat that says, it tastes like lemon, not really. And of course, they're like, now drink this water and this will go right down. And it was not enjoyable. Mm -hmm. um, but I spent another four or five days in the hospital. From that surgery, oh, by the way, the surgery I had, the first part of it, I went from 160 to 142 pounds in eight days. Oh, my. And uh, they're like, no, I'm sorry, 118 pounds. I lost 42 pounds. That's what I remember. And they came in and they said, you're malnutritioned. You could have a heart attack. You could have a stroke. I'm like, I'm in your hospital. So, you know, and they asked me, how did, one day I lost 13 pounds in a day. Hmm. And they were like, how did you do that? I'm like, I don't know. 
Right, as you if tell you me. knew how you lost, yeah. I'm like, I'm in your hospital, you tell me what's going on. Um, and then, of course, I ended up back in with the complication. Before I left Arizona to come back to Pennsylvania, um, my white count was way high, so they did some tests, and they said, you have pneumonia. Mm -hmm. You aspirated something, and you ended up with pneumonia. Um, so when I got back to Pennsylvania, a week later, I ended up having to have a bronchoscopy, which is where they basically go on down to your lungs with a vacuum cleaner and vacuum your lungs out. And because my doctor said your lungs were worse than any time you've had bronchitis or pneumonia. And when my Crohn's was active, um, I ended up with bronchitis or pneumonia every year. Mm. I was in the hospital almost every year at some point to try to treat that. So I think it's fair to say that uh, you have been a chronic patient for three decades, mm -hmm. had a number of surgeries, lots of complications. But at this time, it sounds like though you had a diagnosis because you were diagnosed with Crohn's, they took a lot of your colon out had another surgical procedure, took the rest of your colon out. When was, when was that point where they, they didn't really know what was happening anymore? And, and I'm thinking again about people who have autoimmune diseases. Your story is very similar. Um, for many of us who live with autoimmune diseases, for the people listening, um, there's an American Autoimmune Related Disease Association, the AARDA. Uh, and they were giving some interesting statistics I was looking at. Uh, 50 million American, which, uh, Americans, which is 20% of the population, have an autoimmune disease. That's one in five. Right. So it's very common. 75% um, are women. So this is something that many people either experience or know about. And I think your story is very similar uh, to those who uh, are diagnosed, undiagnosed, re-diagnosed, kind of go through this, these waves. Bring me back to um, the story, though, with this physician recently, this neurologist who says that to you. Okay. Um, and tell me a little bit more about what it's been like navigating through the system um, more recently as sort of, well, you have Crohn's disease, but there's more going on with you. Complications right. of Crohn's. Um, I've heard other people say once you have an autoimmune disease, even if it, if it goes into remission, your body might have other autoimmune disease or type Sure. function so I think at this point um, you know as I said they did the ileoanal they actually had to go in and repair it two years later I had another surgery in 2004 just to kind of get up to where I'm at now I haven't uh, and then they as you know uh, then they had to recite my ostomy at one point and that had complications and that was in 2012 so from 86 to 2012 there's 20 years of, of significant major surgeries since then, I have not had any surgery, but hydration has become the issue. With no large intestine, and your large intestine does about 90% of your water absorption for your body, my body can't figure out how to manage things. And I also think part of it now is age. I don't like admitting that, but it is. And so my body's trying to figure out how to work with a modified digestive system that is missing an ileum, or most of them, which is where your B-complex vitamins are mm. and where you absorb them. It's the only place in your body you absorb. And then I don't absorb um, water. I now, according to um, a year and a half ago, I ended up with a neurologist, an ophthalmologist, a cardiologist, a nephrologist, a gastroenterologist. I think a rheumatologist? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Not yet. Well, you got enough specialists. So. Yeah. 
Um, and I was seeing all of them. And, and honestly, for the first time, I think I actually had um, a pretty comprehensive team of people looking at me and really realizing what was going on. This neurologist that I'm speaking of, uh, two years ago I had an appointment with him. And what happened was we'd had a significant snowstorm the day before. And by significant, I mean like 30 inches of snow, which for Pennsylvania is kind of blows them away. But I made it to my appointment the next day and a lot of people had canceled. So I ended up with this neurologist and they had run uh, another CAT scan and an MRI of my brain. Um, and he had a resident with him. And he actually spent two hours with me. And he walked this resident through this kind of unique patient, if you will. And I learned more in that two hours about everything that had happened to me and why all the things interacted. Um, more in that two hours than I had learned in almost 30 years. Why do you think he spent two hours with you? Um, I think he found me interesting somehow. Um, plus he had a resident and he wanted this resident to kind of work through it because he would ask the resident these questions and say what do you think about this what do you think about this and so and of course I just got to listen okay. but it, it because I've done so much work on reading myself and trying to figure out my body um, because I have to live with it um, it wasn't like those questions were like I have no idea what he just said mm -hmm. I, I could at least make sense of most I'd say 90% of what was going on you become, I, I, I dare say, a, a health literate individual. Yeah, it and, sounds a, like. and a, kind of an expert on my own body. Yeah, and well, I have to. Yeah, after thirty years, I would yeah, think. because I have to pay attention. I know when certain things happen, what I need to do, and if I don't pay attention to that, something bad's going to happen. Yeah, and I want to get to the advocacy part. Um, yeah. I can't help but think I, I hear you continue to say, um, "I'm that special patient, unique patient." Is that something you've heard a lot be in over time? Oh, yes. we've never seen this before. I've never had this happen. Wow, you really are unique. I, I've heard other people with autoimmune disease sort of get that same, wow, we, we haven't seen this before. You're a unique situation. Did you heard well, this? Well, I think um, it seems that every complication one could have with Crohn's, I've managed to have. Okay. So I guess that cumulatively makes me unique or somehow makes me um, special and I'm not sure I want to be special. I don't know that I like being unique. Um, I don't know that I like them going, you know, um, they will often call in another person and say, what do you think of this? I mean, that's happened to me probably more times than I have fingers. Um, you know, I've had, again, I, I wrote in a paper once, I felt like a guinea pig mm -hmm. um, or a specimen under a microscope. Uh, I've been held up as a poster child for managing things through complications. Mm -hmm. I just want to live my life. I don't need to be. Uh, I don't need to be that. Oh, look at this guy. He's, he's somehow different. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I. I guess it's made me tougher in some ways, but I guess it's also made me realize I'm just fortunate to still be here in a way, especially after what I said it to start out. You know, the last time the same neurologist said, most people don't live this long. And I'm like, crap, <laughs> what do I do with that? <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, and he looked at me and he said, well, he said, we kind of know each other at this point. And I said, yes. 
And he said, you're not offended? And I said, no. And I said, but, you know, I don't know what to think about that. And yeah. he said, I understand. And I think I, with most of my doctors, um, you know, I've got a pretty good rapport because I, I ask questions. Yeah, and, that, and that's the part I want to transition into. So one of the things that um, the point of health stories is to really offer advice. And for those who are listening with um, autoimmune disease or knowing a loved one, um, being told we're not sure what's going on because autoimmune uh, diseases are still very complex. There's still a lot we don't know, right. the causes of autoimmune diseases. So um, I wonder how much your story resonates with other people trying to figure out what to do. So I want you to keep keep going in this. Um, what are some things that you've learned over your 30 years about things to say, um, how to respond, how you view yourself? Um, so let's start with things that you have learned to say over time. When I was first diagnosed with then ulcerative colitis before I went to Crohn's, and the reason it became Crohn's is the you know the colon was gone, but I still had all the issues and all the symptoms. Um, I went to the hospital library um, while I was in the hospital and started reading. Mm. And I was like, what is this? Um, you know, and part of it is because of, you know, inflammatory bowel diseases, people don't talk about them. We don't talk about going to the bathroom. Or if you do, it's like, why are you talking about that? So in some ways I felt like I couldn't ask because it's embarrassing. So then I, I kind of took on it upon myself. I'm like, I have to figure this out. Mm. When you say ask, you mean you, you felt embarrassed even asking the clinician? Yeah, I couldn't. I didn't know what to ask. And, and part of that was my very first experience. And we didn't talk about that, but I'll do it very quickly. Um, you know, I, I saw some blood. So I went to a VA hospital where I was going to grad school at the time. A, a veterans? Yeah, VA. Veterans Administration because I am a veteran. And... And uh, this old salty Navy doctor says, we need to do this procedure, but I have some students that I want to observe. Do you care? And I went, no, that's fine. Did you know what the procedure was? No, I didn't know anything. So, so I walk in and there are three young, attractive women in lab coats. And the next thing I know, my nose and my toes are on the floor. And that proctology exam that they did, um, one had no anesthesia mm. and that proctology tube did not bend. I bent <laughs> and it was incredibly painful and incredibly mortifying and I thought I was going to pass out. So that was my first experience and there was nothing good about it. Oh. And then they, you know, in the next eight weeks I ended up losing 25, 30 pounds. I was in the bathroom 15 times a day. I ended up in the hospital at another VA hospital in, in Nebraska. And that's when I got diagnosed, and I was like, what is this? At that point, were you given information from a clinician or clinical staff? I believe I was, but I don't know that I understood any of it. Right. And it, they didn't really explain very much. They just said, you have this. And I'm like, but what does that mean? I mean, that's what I thought. I don't even think I said that out loud. I just, in my head, what does that mean? And I figured out, now I had to start asking questions. Yeah. So would you say now that you've become, I heard you say before, and I wanted to talk about the advocate, 
So do you advocate for yourself? Do you ask those questions oh, that yes. are embarrassing? How did you get to that? So I'm thinking of people who are listening who have bleeding and, and bowel and other bodily functions and habits, which is something we're taught not to talk about. How did you get to that point where you feel comfortable asking your clinician and talking about your bodily functions? Um, partly surgery, I think. You know, it's when you're in again and you're in a really vulnerable place, um, but there are times where I've been in such extreme pain, uh, you know, that twice I've gone in through emergency rooms and ended up in surgery because I couldn't function. And, you know, they say, they'll ask some questions and I just start telling. Mm. At this point, I'm like, this is what it is. This is who I am. This is what I have. Um, I, there's still times, I mean, I have colleagues that have no idea that I have an ostomy. And I've had it for 20 years. Um, and I'm just now learning to be more comfortable with that and to honestly say that. I, I just took my first selfie picture where you can actually see it. Mm. Um, so there's still that side of, you know, that upper Midwest background of mine that says you're kind of stoic and you don't talk. But when I'm in front of, of medical people now, I'm not afraid to say anything or ask anything. What has been some, um, so, I'm, so I want to recap, I'm hearing you say that you read a lot of literature, looked up a lot of information, uh, which some clinicians appreciate. I've heard some say it's really nice to have somebody who is health literate or an advocate and, and is, you know, um, looks up that information. Others will say, but then they take that information and um, come to conclusions. Self-diagnose. Yeah. Uh, so I've heard that can be challenging too, but for you it was helpful to do more, look up more information. Educate yourself. I think part of it is, you know, and again, not to run down that road very far, but I grew up with a, a parent who had significant health issues mm -hmm. um, and just put in their mouth whatever the doctor told them to do. And I saw what happened to them over a number of years. I didn't ever want to be that chronically ill person, mm -hmm. uh, but I am that person that has, that has a chronic disease, uh, and I knew that I wanted to manage it in a, in a different way. So that's, I think that's part of the impetus. Um, and part of it is I'm just a questioner. I just, I'm like, I need to know. Yeah. So did some reading, ask some questions, advocate for yourself, feel more comfortable embracing and, and being more comfortable yeah. with, with what's happening to your body. Um, in the experiences that you've had with clinicians, what are some positive experiences that you've had and, and advice that you would offer individuals who are listening um, that have been valuable? I think um, there are two doctors in particular uh, that I can think of. And one um, was a general practitioner, but had taken a significant interest in you know, gastroenterology and you know, the digestive systems. And he was a person that was willing to kind of let me manage my own health to a point. Um, but I would end up, you know, and this was after the ileoanal J-pouch stuff. Um, there were a lot of stricturing and stenosis and a lot of, which is scar tissue and tissue that doesn't move. And uh, that created a lot of problems for just normal um, bathroom habits. And this is when I didn't, it was between having the ostomy temporarily and, and being back to what was normal for me. So I ended up with dilation processes where they'd have to literally go into that rectal area and dilate things out. Um, and basically it was like 
going in for a scoping about every six to eight weeks. And when I finally went to the ileostomy permanently in 1997, uh, after I went to see him afterwards, he said, I'm so glad you did this. And he said, I wish you would have done it a while ago, but I knew you weren't ready. Mm. So he allowed me, you know, and he said it was really hard in some ways to be my doctor. Oh, because he, he knew what was good for you, but he, you weren't ready yet. Right. And I'm sorry, said, not what good for you, but medically. Right, medically, the, the best way to, to move forward. And he said, you know, for about five years, you went through a lot of pain that wasn't ever going to really change. But he said, you kept hoping it would finally work. It would finally work. And, that, and again, there's that issue of we don't want something on our sides. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't know if it's different for males and females. I don't know because I haven't talked to enough people. But it didn't seem very manly to say I have to run to the bathroom. Or it didn't say, seem very manly, if you will, to say I have a pouch on my side. And I, and I wasn't ready to do that. But in 1997, they said, if we don't do this in the next 72 hours, you will die. Mm-hmm. Um, then that, you don't really have an option. Yeah. So, but, it, but it sounds like he was very supportive. Um, yes. Using this terminology, different stages uh, yep. where patients can be at, they can be in a contemplative. It sounds like you're in a contemplative stage where you're thinking about it, but you weren't ready to take action. I'm and, not even sure I wanted to think about it. Okay, so I, you're in the pre-contemplative yeah, stage. Yeah, okay, so you're already ready, right? And he recognized that and didn't push you. Right. He was a, he was an excellent doctor. Yeah. Okay. When I had surgery in 2004, and there were really complications from the surgery of '97 to 2004, I was so ill when I went in and. 97 that the internal pouch that was in there they actually left in Mm. it eventually started to cause more um, infections and problems so in 2004 I went into another surgery and this one was in Wisconsin and um, it was a five hour surgery Mm. and the doctor said to me it worked really well till we had to chisel things out and I remember saying to him, when you say chisel and my intestines in the same sentence, that doesn't make me happy. And he said that there was scar tissue, that there was an abscess on an internal muscle, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that was the person who said to me, when you were little, did you have this, this, and this? And I said, yes. And he said, you've had Crohn's your whole life. Mm-hmm. That was not anything I ever anticipated. Um, so it helped me, again, understand um, the scope of my disease, the, you know, so those doctors that were willing to, to ask me questions mm-hmm. more than just that kind of immediate what's happening today, you know, the, the neurologist that met with me for two hours, you know, I got to see all the things they think about, all the things they do, all the things they wonder about that we don't usually see. When, when they allow us to be involved that way, if you're willing to listen and ask questions, I think you can take a lot more charge of your own health situation because now you actually begin to understand. Most people might not understand all the terminology, but they understand the effect. They understand what it does to their body. Right. And if they can have that conversation more than being a specimen or a, you know, um, it's kind of like, in, and I know you know this book and, and I've read it, you know, Arthur Frank's book on the wounded storyteller. and. Mm-hmm how our stories get co-opted you know they're looking at symptoms they're not looking at a person sometimes yeah 
those those doctors who saw me as more than a, a, a bunch of symptoms are the ones that probably did me the most good. That's great advice. So they're they're treating you, all of you. Yeah. Um, learning your story and taking the time to do that, which can be hard given the limitations and time constraints and pressures that physicians face sure. having to see so many patients each day. And yet looking back, it was those who asked questions and wanted to know more about your story, how you felt, yep. your sense of concept, your emotional state, social yeah. state, would you say as well? Yeah, the doctor in, in Wisconsin actually asked me to write up my history. And I, and I was good enough to write up not only the history, but I knew all the drugs. I knew the the uh, dosages. Mm -hmm. And I wrote all this up, and he's like, did you take a medical writing course? I'm like, no. <laughs> he's, I said, but I do technical writing. He said, well, he said, but you, you spelled everything correctly. And I'm like, well, I looked it all up because I didn't want to look stupid. But he said, you have done a great job of helping. So when I got in there, I could understand things. So again, I took some charge of my... You know my history if you will um i think that the tough thing about inflammatory bowel disease and this gets back to us talking about um, not wanting to talk about certain things most of us see our digestive system as a tube it starts at our mouth and it ends up at the other end and it's just a tube no it's all so much more and it's so much more complex especially for autoimmune diseases yeah. it's really systemic it's the whole body yeah um, even if it's Hashimoto's, which is the thyroid, even if it's a certain part, um, Sjogren's syndrome, all these different lupus, um, yeah. although the lupus is, is very systemic, um, it can appear on one part of the body, but really affect, and it, it varies as much holistic. And I'm hearing you say they were looking at your whole body right. and trying to understand your whole body and how it works. Yeah. Although initially, because of your diagnosis, they were focused and, and your surgery was on your, your colon. Yeah. And I wonder how much your chronic um, lack of a diagnosis after your Crohn's diagnosis is because you didn't have a colon. So what do you have? Right. How do, how do we treat you for if you don't have the part of the body sure. that you've been identified with and diagnosed with? Right. You know, and I think that sounds like it was a challenge. Well, I went from '86 really to post 2004. You know, when they finally said. You know, you don't have a colon anymore, but things are still happening. Yeah. And now, like I said, things are in remission, but other things are happening. You know, congestive heart failure is fatal if it's not dealt with. Kidneys shutting down are fatal if they're not, it's not dealt with. Um, you know, I've had more trips to emergency rooms for dehydration and dump a couple bags of fluids in me um, because, you know, my body can't figure out how to manage. And... So what I know, and I actually wrote in a paper not long ago, is, you know, I'm this person with a chronic disease, but I don't even know all the consequences yet. And I don't. Um, but I'm okay with that. So, so being okay with it, and, and we're nearing the end of our, our time together, what advice do you have for those who, uh, all of us who are listening? So we've addressed uh, how to be an advocate for yourself, questions, advice for clinicians. But for the rest of us who go through life with the diagnosis, and yet we still continue to have symptoms that physicians, the, the medical system can't figure out, how, how do you navigate through the system not knowing all the things that are happening to you? Um, I think you have to step back and understand who you are as a person. Um, because we're all humans. And 
where I'm at at this point with my body is in spite of all the things, my body still works. Does it work optimally? Yes, with what it has. Um, and I have to be willing to look at it that way. Um, I don't want to feel like the victim. I don't want to feel like a survivor um, or barely a survivor. I want to feel like a person, uh, I want to be seen as a person who has a life. And I don't want, um, I don't want to be that person that walks around sad faced or, or feeling like somehow I've been, you know, given a deck of cards that I, you know, I really got ripped off. Um, you know, part of this, and I know you know this one, uh, but you know, being born at 17 ounces in 26 weeks in the mid 1950s, the fact that I'm here at all, um, is pretty amazing. The fact that I've gone through all these things. So part of it is, I mean, I think you have to take some charge of how you want to manage things. Um, and you have to be willing to, to listen. And I think the part where I'm still learning and I'm not there yet is to be willing to, you know, to be here and to share this on the, even this podcast is, is a step that I'm not sure a few years ago I would have taken. Like I said, it's one thing to talk to my doctor. It's another thing to put out there that, no, I'm this person, you know, and, and I've said this to you before, so you know this, but it's, you know, I went from the colon to the semicolon to the run-on sentence to the fragment, mm -hmm. as my English major friends tell me, and I'm like, shut up. But you, you have to find humor. You have to find something positive in the midst of something that really isn't positive. And you have to surround yourself with people who will love you and accept you for who you are. Um, because I've been around those persons that didn't do that, and that's incredibly painful too. I think one of the most difficult parts of suffering with um, an inflammatory bowel disease and then becoming an ostomate or a person who has the bag on their side uh, was that my wife at the time didn't know how to manage that. I didn't know how to manage it, but her uh, inability to uh, manage or manage with me uh, was incredibly painful. I had that ostomy for eight weeks and she would barely get into bed with me. She never looked at the changing of it. Um, when I had to go into, um, uh, have the bronchoscopy, which we talked about, uh, she was angry that I had messed up our weekend. And she said, you have ruined our entire weekend. And that was incredibly painful. Um, she did not look at any of that until the day before I was leaving to go back to Arizona to have it reversed. And that was because her parents were there and her dad wanted to see. And her father said, do you care if I look? And I said, no, that's fine. Uh, and then she came in. So that was a difficult time. Uh, there are other times as far as just, you know, when you lose weight, when you can't eat, when you're living in the bathroom, and I talked in a paper about this kind of what I call it's, it's not much different than being um, mentally ill. There's no body self alignment and it struggles. And there were times where I thought I've had enough. I can't do it. I'm going to quit. Um, but somehow I pulled myself out of that. And I don't always know how I pulled out of that. But uh, for anyone that has those times and thinks I can't do this, that's a pretty common thing. Um, but that's when you have to find someone to help you and you have to have uh, people that you can depend on or believe in and, 
And ultimately, you have to believe in yourself. So you have talked about it, you've written about it, done an article. Uh, I know that you blog about this, so mm -hmm. do, would you like to share with our listeners if they want to read more about Well, my blog? blog talks about more than my health things, so there are a lot of things there. Okay. Um, but it's been read by almost 18,000 people now, so that kind of blows me away. Yeah. But it's called The Writing Professor 55, and it's in the number 55.com. It's okay. a WordPress site, but I own it, so it's The Writing Professor 55, all lowercase. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for joining our podcast today. Thank you, Nicole. Offering insights of going through almost three decades of living with uh, diagnosis and uh, also undiagnosis uh, and how to navigate through the system. Sure. We invite our listeners to like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. Please leave your comments, thoughts, and if you're interested in being interviewed, we're always looking for new individuals to add to our podcast series. Thank you for joining us today. This is Health Stories. <laughs>